Welcome back to the Knife at the Gunfight. I'm your host, Doc Fitz, and uh, it seems like so much has happened, it's hard to keep up. It's hard to imagine that a Wall Street Journal report that uh, the president paid hush money to keep a stripper quiet in the weeks before the most recent presidential election would become minor news the same day it was published. But here we are. About the same time that that news story broke, Trump also sabotaged a bipartisan immigration compromise to avert a government shutdown. He sabotaged this deal, calling Haiti, El Salvador, Honduras, and African nations shitholes. Now this comment is clearly racist, elitist, entitled, and it shows Trump also has no sense of history. And you know, I understand a lot of people feel like this was a, a minor detail in a long list of major grievances. I think that point is true, but um, you know, I have a lot of Haitians in my family and would like to think of myself as part of a Haitian family. And these comments, apart from whether he said shithole or shithouse or whatever, the comments and the intent was hurtful. It caused pain and anger. Enough that you'd want to tell him to shut his shithole face. Nonetheless, I found Anderson Cooper's comment in response to this sincere and moving and it touched a lot of people and i also found it surprisingly insightful he describes a haitian handshake with such precision i thought it was just my father-in-law however righteous indignation feels like an appropriate response we need much more than that we need to win at this time on the verge of catastrophic climate change with rising inequality declining wages health care funding for education etc because all of that has been given up to pay for corporate tax cuts and profits of the richest strata of society trump's lack of respect and anderson's response remind us to continue to work hard and carry ourselves with dignity even when our president does neither in that spirit we have today dr brian williams a dallas trauma surgeon who on july 7 2016 a day just following the killings of Alton Sterling and Fernando Castile, who was staffing the Parkland Hospital Trauma Service when a gunman shot 12 Dallas police officers. We talk with him about trauma, surgery, and activism in the wake of such racial animosity and violence. And it's a great show today, so stay tuned. <laughs> Qui empêche un parti qui t'aime Haïti chérie En avant tout m'sati la t'mare l'out nourrime Chérie Pour bon Jean-Pierre Mango aussi hors cap chanté Chérie La moi blaine à Kambou Longtemps, longtemps l'aime de pitié A tout tes amis m'a pâti Map chèche chimé la campagne, pour mal trouver bon goût la vie. Les nivens trouvés en anana, bon j'en gangré al poun souce, l'ococo et sa vine de sa, tout bagaille sa yo fem remeu. I just want to take a moment to talk about Haiti, one of the places the President of the United States referred to today as a shithole country. I was taught math in high school by a Haitian immigrant named Yves Vallel, who worked hard, who dedicated himself to teaching kids in America. He ultimately returned to his country of Haiti and was assassinated while running for president. I spent a lot of time in Haiti. I first went there in the early 1990s as a young reporter. In 2010, my team from CNN was the first international team of journalists on the ground after the earthquake struck. I spent more than a month there and have returned many times on assignment and on vacation. Like all countries, Haiti is a collection of people. It's rich and poor, well-educated and not good and bad. But I've never met a Haitian who isn't strong. 
You have to be to survive in a place where the government has often abandoned its people, where opportunities are few, and where Mother Nature has punished the people far more than anyone should ever be punished. But let me be clear tonight. The people of Haiti have been through more. They've been through more, they've withstood more. They fought back against more injustice than our president ever has. Tomorrow marks exactly eight years since the earthquake struck Haiti. A 7.1 magnitude earthquake killed anywhere between 220,000 and 300,000 people. The actual numbers will never be known because they were buried in unmarked pits. One and a half million people were displaced. For days and weeks without help from their own government or police, the people of Haiti dug through rubble with their bare and bloodied hands to save complete strangers, guided only by the cries of the wounded and the dying. I was there when a young girl named B, who'd been trapped in rubble for nearly a day, was rescued by people who had no heavy equipment. They just had their God-given strength and their determination and their courage. I was there when a five-year-old boy named Monley was rescued after being buried for more than seven days. Do you know what strength it takes to survive on rainwater buried under concrete? A five-year-old boy buried for seven days. Haitians slap your hand hard when they shake it. They look you in the eye. They don't blink. They stand tall and they have dignity. It's a dignity many in this White House could learn from. It's a dignity the president, with all his money and all his power, could learn from as well. On the anniversary of the earthquake, on this day when this president has said what he has said about Haitians, we hope the people in Haiti who are listening tonight in Port-au-Prince, in Jacmel, in Benet, in Miami and elsewhere, we hope they know that our thoughts are with them and that our love is with them as well. Welcome back to The Knife at the Gunfight. I'm here with a good friend of The Knife, Dr. Brian Williams. Uh, Brian, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Simon. How are you? I'm, I'm good. I'm good. And, uh, you know, thank you for joining us. You know, I, I first met you at the uh, East Trauma Conference, and uh, we had a real interesting conversation. And I wanted to talk to you today about kind of your life journey and what you see your role as a trauma surgeon who's going above and beyond the medical and surgical role. Uh, but before we get to that, I just want to kind of let people who aren't familiar with your history in on the basics, like where are you from? And for example, I always ask, where did you go to high school? Sure, sure. So I, I kind of break my life up into probably three phases, you know, childhood, my time in the military, and my medical career. And to answer your first question about where I went to high school, I did um, my first two years of high school at Radford High School in Honolulu, Hawaii, wow. and my last two years at Hampton High School in Hampton, Virginia. And we moved around because my father was a career Air Force enlisted person, so I'm a proud Air Force brat. <laughs> been moving around my entire life. Okay. So, so after high school, did you go to college or did you go to the military first? No, I went to the uh, Air Force Academy for for my college. So. Uh, I've pretty much known Air Force Blue since day one when I was born in an Air Force hospital uh, in Massachusetts. But I did wow. my college at the Air Force Academy at the time. I did not plan to go in the field of medicine. I studied aeronautical engineering, and I did that for six years after getting out, after, you know, after I graduated from college. And I've noticed you've been active among other people in a movement to recognize the lack of uh, black people, especially black men in medicine, and really encourage that sort of black men in medicine movement. So what, you, you just said that you weren't first oriented towards medical field. What directed you in that direction? What was uh, the birth of that in your life? Sure. I became interested in medicine while I was in the Air Force because the people I socialized with were in the medical field. Uh, and that 
mainly because my girlfriend at the time was uh, was a nurse. So being around her and her coworkers was my first, uh, you know, consistent interaction with people that were in the medical field. And from that, my interest continued to grow. And it really took a couple of years before I really thought that, okay, one, this is what I should be doing with my life, and two, that I actually could could do it. Um, but having not been a pre-med major, I didn't really even know where to begin, like who to talk to, what I need to do to apply, you know, learning about the MCAT. That was, you know, a bunch of trial and error on, on my part. And remember, this is back in the 90s. This is, you know, you know, early stage of the Internet. You couldn't find this information as quickly as you can nowadays. So... It really helped to have someone guiding you along the way, and I didn't. I did not have that, but fortunately, I. And, and is that part of your role now? Are you mentoring people to try to, uh, to if you see interest, direct them into to, uh, to making that part of their life? Absolutely. It's. Uh, I mean, I I look back on my life, and I recognize that the successes I have are the result of input and help from a lot of people, from friends and family to other mentors who, you know, even cross paths me just once and probably don't realize the impact they had on, on my professional career. So I always feel an obligation to make time for others that are coming up behind me that want to pursue this profession, either by answering their questions or giving them guidance that they may not know they need. So did you know people working in surgery or in trauma? How did you uh, find yourself in that profession once you decided to pursue medicine? Yes, that's, uh, that's a good question. When I went to medical school, you know, I was pretty open-minded about what I wanted to specialize in. I didn't want it to be a doctor, um, but what kind of doctor at the end of that uh, four years was still pretty open. But at, as you know, in that third-year medical school, that's when we start doing our clinical rotations. Yep. And my first rotation was surgery, and part of that rotation we did... I can't remember if it was two weeks or, two, or a month on trauma surgery. And I was, this is at Tampa General Hospital in Tampa. I went to a medical school at the University of South Florida. So this is a public hospital, busy trauma center. And I'm telling you, on, on the second day of that rotation, I was like, this is it. You <laughs> this decided. Is it. This is what I want to do with my life. Yeah. Uh, I was set from that point on. It, just, it, it grabbed me. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so what's your early career like in, in trauma surgery? So I did my fellowship uh, at Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia, one of those iconic trauma, you know, urban trauma centers in the country. What I, what I call the temples of trauma. Right, right. So I did two years there, and that was really a very formative time for my development as a trauma surgeon. Just high volume, high acuity, uh, excellent mentorship. It, it was just I just felt fortunate to be there when I when I was there, and I you know I you know I had a blast during that entire time. There's sleep deprivation and challenges, and it's busy and hard. But when I was finished, I felt okay. I'm ready to go out there and be on my own. And then I came to Dallas. Uh, my my draw here was I, there are three things three things I want to do in my medical career. From a clinical standpoint, I knew I wanted to be at a busy public, you know, busy trauma center serving indigent patients. I wanted to teach residents. I wanted to teach medical students. So I wanted to be at a university-affiliated public hospital. That's why I came to Dallas. So I got all that by working at Parkland Hospital and being on faculty at UT Southwestern. Another temple of trauma, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I came... Uh, came here and you know out, right out the gate I was, I was having a great time I, I called my friends and said hey being a trauma attending is the best job in the world I was just having fun just you know, operating taking care of patients working with residents and students uh, I, I've, had, I've had the best job in the world I mean, it was it was perfect so when did you start at Parkland in Dallas that was September of 2010 okay and so 
for anybody that knows you, obviously July 7, 2016 becomes a fulcrum, right? Uh, right. A, a moment in which your life changes forever. Uh, if, if you're willing, I'd love to hear you talk about that moment and what it meant to you and, and kind of get a sense of how your life's trajectory changed from there. I mean, I get asked this question a lot about July 7th. And, you know, of course, out of respect for these officers that were involved and their families, I'll only share so much um, about the night. Um, but I think it's very important to consider that night in the, in the context of what it was going on in the country, you know, those two or three days prior to uh, the shooting here in Dallas. Because on July 5th, you had the uh, officer-involved shooting of Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge. And on July 6th, you had the officer-involved shooting of Philando Castile in Minnesota. And both of those deaths were recorded. They were played repeatedly on TV. Like, they were dominating the media cycle for the 48 hours prior to Dallas. And then July 7th in Dallas, we had this um, peaceful protest in downtown Dallas, which was in response to those shootings. And, of course, the, the protest turned violent with uh, the sniper that was targeting white police officers at the event. And the majority of those officers were brought to Parkland Hospital. And that night, I was working uh, an overnight shift, which was unusual for a number of reasons, but I just happened to take over the shift for one of my partners who needed the night off for some other obligations. So I was, I happened to be there that night as the in-house trauma surgeon. You know, we're, we're very busy. I don't know if all your listeners are medically, medical professionals, uh, assuming some are not. Uh, our hospital is so busy that there's always a trauma surgeon in the hospital 24-7 every day of the year. So I was there that night. And just you know, my involvement, caring for these officers, and learning afterwards what transpired downtown, and already being affected by the last few days, and, and literally really the last few years when it comes to black men dying, that all came together for me that night. And really, I had no expectation that that was going to happen when I went into work that night. But it did, and it was, uh, it was, it was life-changing. Of course. So, uh, How so? How was how it life-changing to you? Well, leading up to that, it was changing because leading up to that night, I was already through this introspective process considering my identity as you know, Brian Williams, my identity as a black man in this country was now you know, getting used to repeatedly seeing images of black men dying and that being normalized. My identity as a trauma surgeon who routinely deals with the end results of gun violence and much of that gun violence is against, you know, people that look like me and have to interact with families that look like me. And also my identity, you know, my role as a husband and, and a father and a friend, you know, what I thought of myself and what I was, the life I was living, that all started to unravel after that night. So I really began to question, am I doing enough? Am I doing the right thing? Is this what I should be doing with my time on this earth? And that's why it was life changing. I had to make a decision about what I was going to do from that point going forward. And what kind of decisions or what kind of changes did you make in your life? Well, immediately I'd made no changes. You know, master at compartmentalization, which, you know, is good and bad for a trauma surgeon, depending on your, your perspective. But at the time, I really just, I just locked it all away. And uh, I went to work the next day and the day after that and, you know, going into Monday. So there was no immediate changes, no immediate decision to make any changes, at least consciously. What was happening, you know, subconsciously, that is impossible to describe for me. Mm -hmm. But uh, the press conference on the 11th is when 
I really decided, okay, I need to step into this and not just pretend that this is not important to me or to the nation. So when I'm sitting at the press conference and we're talking about the, uh, the event, and initially I had no plans to attend the press conference. Uh, I, that night was, I mean, it was really the, the worst night of my professional career, and it really still bothered me up until that point. And I didn't want to be on camera discussing these events for anybody. Um, but I did attend after some controlling by my wife, who pretty much said, you have to be there because I'm, I'm the only black trauma surgeon in the group. Mm-hmm. And because of the racial undertones of this event, she was, I mean, she saw what I saw but was refusing to admit that it was important for the, the nation to see that there was a black man who was trying to save these officers despite all that was going on, which I, you know, that's a statement about the, uh, how, where our nation is right now when it comes to racial relations, mm-hmm. just to be there as a visible presence with no intention to speak. But as the conversation progressed, I realized, at least for myself, I'm thinking there is something much bigger about this event that is not being discussed. And it has to be mentioned. And if it doesn't happen now, it probably will never happen. There's a, there's this moment right here that is about to pass. And I, you know, I thought about this silently, you know, but this topic is in my mind you know, in a split second. I'm thinking about this all very quickly. And then I just really realized that, okay, you need to say something, Brian. And for me, this is one of the most difficult times in my life. But I recognize that no matter what I'm going through right now, compared to the families of the officers and the victims that were killed this last week, it's nothing. Yes, I want some time off. I've been going nonstop since Thursday night. But those families have lost people very important to them. The officers, the victims in Baton Rouge, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, I'm sorry. So it's hard for me to complain about my life right now in comparison to theirs. Talk about the emotional impact. It's much, much more complicated for me personally because it's not just about that one night. It's about the racial undertones that affect, impact all of this. So it began for me much longer before those cops came through the door that evening. I don't know what I'm going to do about that, but right now it is certainly a struggle. There's this dichotomy where I am standing with law enforcement, but I also personally feel and understand that angst that comes when you cross the paths of an officer in uniform and you're fearing for your safety. I've been there and I understand that. But for me, that does not condone disrespecting or killing police officers. And it's something that I'm struggling with constantly. And I truly don't know what I'm going to do next. Do you have any children? Yes, I do. So, I have a daughter. Um, I make sure, I, I do simple things while I'm out in public. When I see police officers eating at a restaurant, I pick up their tab. I even one time a year or two ago, I bought one of the Dallas PD officers some ice cream when I was out with my daughter getting ice cream. I want my daughter to see me interacting with police that way so she doesn't grow up with the same burden that I carry when it comes to interacting with law enforcement. And I want the Dallas police to also see me, a black man, and understand that I support you, I will defend you, and I will care for you. That doesn't mean that I do not fear you. That doesn't mean that if you approach me, I will not immediately have a visceral reaction and start worrying for my personal safety. But I'll control that the best I can 
and not let that impact how I deal with law enforcement. And I accepted that once I opened my mouth, that when I said this, I was going to get fired. I assumed that that would be the end result of this. Um, however, I just felt it was, it was too important to not mention that at that moment. So that was the decision to actually step into this discussion. Of course, I had no idea what would happen as a result <laughs> of me saying that the media response the social media response was something that was like I don't know how you can prepare for that. It was just it was surreal. So I, I definitely uh, I, th I think I understand that you know you put something out in the world nowadays, especially, and it has a life of its own. You no longer control it. Right. Um, uh, you know how did that circle back on you? In you know I, I assume that you you sounds like you loved that job and and what you were doing. How did that come back on you? And, and your employer and, and your group and everything there in Dallas? Uh, there was a, well, uh, first I should say that as far as how it came back, I went media, media silent, radio silent. I just, I wasn't watching the news for a while. I wasn't following social media. So that initial response, that happened without my knowledge. I learned about this, you know, days, weeks after the fact. Um, but I can tell you what I received. I received, I mean, hundreds of emails. I received hundreds of, like, letters where people write the letter, put a stamp on it, and, and mail it to you. A lot of text messages. And most of that was positive. Not all of it, but most of that was positive and supportive. So to me, that I recognize that it actually struck a chord with a lot of people, what I had said, mm -hmm. what to do, what to do next. I didn't at the time have much of a much of a plan for that. I was, I mean, I really was grieving the loss of these officers and what was happening. So there was a, a lot happening with me personally, professionally. And then you add this, um, all these external forces. There was just a lot to unpack during that time. So I didn't sit down and make, make a plan. I was really just riding this wave and keep trying to keep my head above water. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I have to say I appreciate it. I've watched those videos, and uh, it's very clear to me that you're sort of looking at a moment of truth in this nation and uh, being very sincere about it in a way that's uh, painful and difficult and, like you said, has consequences. Um, but also powerful. So I'm really curious to to understand how that power kind of, uh, you know, how it acted upon you and how you were able to, to uh, take control of that power and act on your own life and set your own narrative moving forward from that moment. Sure. So acting on my power and, and moving forward. So part of, part of the background of all this is that I was already thinking about moving on in my professional career prior to July 7th. In fact, just a few months before, I was traveling around the country interviewing for jobs elsewhere. So that seed had already been planted. It wasn't as if July 7th was the, the beginning point of that. It was, I was already thinking about that prior to July 7th. Um, but I had, I mean, for me, I had a lot of difficulty extracting myself because I was very attached to uh, Parkland Hospital. I was very attached to the residents and students I was uh, working with. So all those factors were not easy for me to just to walk away from. So it was a very difficult decision. After July 7th and really thinking about what it is I wanted to do with my time on this earth, you know, I look myself in the mirror and say, Brian, you can no longer make excuses for not making a change. And that process was over the course, you know, of the next year from the shooting to the following summer when I finally resigned. 
it was not a rash decision. It was one that saddened me tremendously, but it was necessary. And now that it's done, I, I have no regrets, not looking back. And it's it's funny how when you make a decision that's difficult like that, once it's made and you move forward, how clarity sets in and you ask yourself, how could I have not done this sooner? And, and I think part of my question, you know, people sometimes sort of jokingly ask, uh, you know, what if you had a superpower, what would it be? And I'm always like, I have a superpower. You know, I spent 10 years learning how to cut to cure. But right, if, that's, right. if that's not, you know, all of our role, then then what is it, you know, as, as a trauma surgeon? What's, what beyond that can we be doing to affect the world positively? Right, so what, what can we contribute beyond how we wield the knife? Exactly. And that's an easy question for me to answer because when I got into medicine in the first place, it was about social justice. And to me at that time, 20-something years ago, social justice to me was a doctor who cared for the indigent, people that had limited, if, if no access, to, to care. So that's how I wanted to, that was that had to be a core component of my medical career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can still do that as a trauma surgeon. You know, I'm not giving up surgery. You know, I took a pause. I didn't leave the profession of surgery. So taking the pause allowed me to sit back and think, okay, how do I get that part of what got me excited about medicine in the first place back into my practice? Because over the course of a few decades, it became a smaller and smaller piece of what I do. And I wanted mm-hmm. to make that the core of what I do. And to do that, I took the pause, thought about what I wanted to do, and now I am crafting that now. And what does that look like? Well, I'm, I'm back at Parkland Hospital in a new role, working as a medical director for the Community Health Institute, which you know allows me to have a role in affecting healthcare for you know hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people, mm-hmm. um, which is gratifying. And as far as my clinical work, I will still be in DFW as a trauma surgeon. Um, my paperwork is currently <laughs> going through the credentialing process, and I'm sure you know how how that can move at a glacial mm-hmm. pace sometimes. But hopefully, within the next few months, uh, I'll be back in the OR working as awesome. a trauma surgeon. So it's all kind of worked out um, well. In addition to that, uh, my activism role is also a core component. So I'm continuing to you know, travel and speak to a variety of audiences about racism and social equity. And uh, well, yeah. I saw you write about one of those experiences that spoke in, you can tell me exactly what conference it was, but a conference of leadership of police departments. And I wanted to know even more than you could possibly write. Like, what was that experience like? Do you think that it was influential either for you or for, you know, police departments? And uh, yeah, what was that like? And, and what do you see coming out of that? Right. So I went to speak at a conference that was attended by command-level police officers. So these were all captains and chiefs of police. And the experience for me was it was probably the most important talk I've given uh, in the, the first year after the, uh, the end of the shooting. Not because of what I said, but because of the experience of giving the talk. Now, I should say, like, they reached out to me. They were eager to have this discussion and when I initially said yes, and this happens months in advance, so I, I agreed to come out and speak with them. But as the time grew closer, I'm thinking like, what am I going to talk to these guys about, you know, or men and women about? I, I'm not, I had no police credentials, no law enforcement credentials. Uh, I just was trying to figure out what can I share with them that will be impactful and useful. And in the end, I just decided, just tell them my story. I will tell them what it's like to be a black youth as I've been and had intermittent encounters with law enforcement, 
or what it's like to be a military officer <laughs> and have encounters with law enforcement or a black professional. And even when these encounters are, you know, there's no, there's no misconduct. I'm talking about the fear I have thinking that something bad could happen. And that fear is, you know, it's instinctual. There's little I can do to uh, mitigate that. And it's not an indictment of law enforcement. It's just a reality of my existence. And that's what I shared with them. Mm -hmm. The second thing that I did, I think is most more important was that instead of leaving after I gave the talk, I stayed for the entire conference and sat through all their sessions. I went to their banquet. So I think it's an example of a classic, you know, you can't fear someone if you know them. So I stayed with them, socialized, talked, ate, met their spouses. And there's a different level of connection that occurred that would have happened if I just talked and left. And from that, I still have ongoing mm-hmm. conversations with several of those police officers that I met at that conference. And uh, do you see anything kind of productive coming out of that collaboration or, or relationship? I, 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 yeah, I do see something happening. Um, there's nothing planned right now, but there's still ongoing dialogue about doing something more. So uh, mm-hmm. yeah, stay tuned. Stay, stay, stay tuned for that long-term project and how about in Dallas do you have a you know a relationship with the police or violence intervention work with the community what do you see your role with regards to trauma and violence in that community well I um, this whole incident has really changed my relationship with Dallas as, as a city you know I, I moved here seven years ago and I always consider myself a transplant who worked in Dallas now since this incident I feel a greater obligation to become more involved in the community of Dallas. So I've partnered with several organizations that are really committed to racial reconciliation, improving relationships between law enforcement and the community, uh, and violence and intervention. So um, that's really like pretty much the core of what I'm doing here in, in Dallas. I've also been named as the chairman of the Citizens Policing Review Board. So now I get to play a much larger role in trying to bridge that gap of communication between, you know, civilians and the, and the police department. Hmm. How long have you had that role for? Uh, this has been uh, two months. This, this, this is a recent. Okay. So I'm just, just, just beginning that, and I'm, I'm excited about it. I think it's very important, and uh, I'm actually honored that I was asked to uh, take the position, so. And you know, I have to say, in, in you know, I'm coming to the part of my career where I'm getting a little more familiar with um, the main actors in trauma surgery, and I have to say, I'm a, I am a little bit uh, pleasantly surprised or impressed by how influential uh, ideas of violence intervention and social justice and structural violence are for our understanding as a discipline of right. the you know etiology and the epidemiology of violence but it, at the same time i feel like there is also you know and i don't know if i'm unfairly imposing this on people but my impression is that there's a certain amount of feeling within surgery in general that violence is sort of um, an asset for surgical training you know um, and people joke when i tell them that my interest is in trauma surgery and violence prevention that I'm going to work myself out of a job like that's a bad thing um, have, have you found I don't know if you have any comment on that in your experience in, in without indicting anyone that you've ever worked with or trained under or met here or there is, is that impression do you think accurate or are there these two strands that are sort of competing in our profession yeah so that's a, that's a good point for trauma surgeons you know our, our livelihood is based on the the injuries and suffering of other people. <laughs> and right. And, and as blunt trauma has become more and more non-operative, right, right. gunshots and, and stab wounds uh, give us surgeries that we find very gratifying and that we can intervene, wield the knife, you know, uh, flex that superpower. Um, I, I like so to remind people that the overwhelming 
overwhelmingly majority of people we care for are innocent individuals that got hurt. <laughs> you know, you have your, your motor vehicle collisions, you have your falls, workplace uh, accidents. You know, we glorify the, the gang violence and the domestic abuse and all these other, um, like, I, I don't want to use, you know, the ones that people become more interested in because of external factors. That's such a small part of what we, what, we, what we deal with. But you're right. The operative trauma is those gunshots and those stabs. And I, I do believe we need to do a better job at addressing structural violence and all the other social determinants of health that make that patient population more prone to those kind of injuries. And that's something I think we should do better as a trauma community. And, and uh, is that kind of how you see your, your new role that, that you're taking in the community in Dallas? Oh, absolutely. Not just in Dallas, nationally. <laughs> mm-hmm. get, got, we need to get the national organizations uh, more involved with these type of issues as well. Hmm. Uh, when I met you at that East Trauma Conference, uh, I was reading a book by a guy from Baltimore called Raw Wounds uh, by Kondwani Fidel, and, and a good friend insisted that I, that I send it to you. Have you had a chance to read right. it? I, I have not had a chance to read it yet. Oh, man. Oh, that's your homework, okay? I, I, I got it. I got it. <laughs> okay. it's, 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 all, it's, it's on my queue. I'm, I'm definitely going to read it. And when I do, I'll, I'm going to get back to you. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> And when, whenever I, I interview someone, I, I like to, uh, to, to ask you for recommendations on books, music, uh, performance, uh, visual art, something that, that you share with me and my listeners about, uh, you know, culturally, what's moving you right now and what do you think is important for us? Man, there's so much time in it. I read a lot of books and I read a lot of books and I listen to a lot of music. Hey, take yeah, your time. The, the most recent book I just finished, which had a tremendous impact on me, is Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Have you heard of this one? I, I'm halfway through it, actually. That's the book I'm reading right now. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay, well, then you could probably appreciate why that had a huge impact on me, particularly with my interest in criminal justice reform. Um, I, I, I feel that that is a must-read for... Uh, pretty much everyone in the country right now. That, that, mm-hmm. that, that would be the book I'd recommend to folks to read at this moment. Uh, any music recommendations for us? <clears throat> music recommendations. What well, is something you mean I know about me, Simon? I, I'm, a, I'm a metalhead. I've been listening to... Okay. I've, been, <laughs> I've been listening to... I mean, I'm a child of the 80s, so I grew up with all the big metal bands of the 80s, Iron Maiden, uh, Metallica, Queensryche. So... I listen to a lot of heavy metal. Not much of it is socially conscious. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, I will, st- I will tell you, a good friend of mine, Ryan Harvey, uh, uh, has made friends with Tom Morello. From, oh, really? uh, yeah. Yeah, from Rage Against the Machine, and they started a record label that, that Morello put a little money behind called uh, uh, Firebrand Records. Right. So, um, you know, if you, ever, if you ever come east, maybe we can, can hook you guys up. Yeah, that reminds me, I've been playing a lot of Audio Slave and Soundgarden on repeat lately. That's still, I'm still mourning Chris <laughs> Cornell, you know. So. I hear you. Well, I wanted to, uh, to make a, a book recommendation as well. Uh, we're recording this on Martin Luther King Day, January 15th. And um, I, in, in a way, sometimes I, I feel like, um, you know, on this holiday, we do like a collective eulogy of, of Martin Luther King. And um, there was a comedian in the 60s I like to say it's fun to eulogize the people you despise. And I feel like that is sort of how Martin Luther King is treated. Um, and, and I have to ask, have you ever read any of, of King's work? Oh, yeah. The most ha- have you read go ahead. The, 19, the 1967 book, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community? I have not read that one yet, no. Well, I'm, I'm going to send it to you. You're going to give me a, a... I have your mailing address, actually. I'm going to send you this book. Um, because I feel like it was very prescient, this moment, you know, he anticipated his death, I think, and he may have had a sense of how that would rip the country apart. And uh, a lot of the country, uh, including cities like where I'm from in Baltimore, descended into chaos, and at least in Baltimore, much of the city has never recovered from his death. You know, um, there were riots recently after the death of Freddie Gray in 2015, 
and people who never didn't know the city, you know, um, uh, media and other people came to the city and, and sort of commented, wow, we can really see how the riots have affected the city. Right. And people from here will be like, take a look at the boards on the windows, you know. Those are 10, 20, 30, 40 years old. Jeez. You know, th this is, this is, you know, the, what you see is not because of what happened two years ago. Right. It's a legacy that's been decades going on. And so I've always found that really instructive in understanding about how do we move beyond uh, uh, those sort of racial conflicts um, that, they, that, that Dr. King was addressing in, in the 60s. So I'm going to send you that book, and your homework is to read uh, Raw Wounds by Kanzwani Fidel and Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community by Dr. King. Got it. All right, and anything else that, uh, that either you want to say or questions you want to pose to nurses, doctors, surgeons, people that are working to take care of people to kind of to readdress their work in the way that you were forced to do in, in, uh, in, in 2016? Sure, I think, uh, well, I, I know all of us that work in healthcare are uniquely positioned to have a positive impact when it comes to race relations in this, in this country because our job is to provide unbiased care to anyone regardless of their background you know we're we it's an ethos that we embody for me it's a personal choice but it's also something that i want to express in the work i do in the hospital so we are all on the front lines of that just by virtue of what we do every single day and i want them all to think about that when they go to work tomorrow i will i appreciate your time and uh, i look forward to the next opportunity and I'm going to make it down to Dallas before long and hit you up, all right? Anytime. We've got plenty of places to stay in my, in my uh, house, so we'll save, <laughs> save you uh, money on the hotel. I appreciate it. Well, Simon, thanks a lot, man. Uh, I had a good time. I'm in love with Lady Haiti, and when they call me to the Grammys, I wrap the flag all around me, because I'm in love with Lady Haiti. I'm so in love, they call me crazy. I left the music with the Haiti. Even though they try to stop me I seen the earth shake right under her feet She told me, baby, don't weep I'm sitting on Oprah, tears in my eyes I knew your story ever since a kid Developed a crush when I heard what you did 1804, you made my people free You the reason I feel like I could be anything Wow, so thanks again for Dr. Brian Williams for taking the time to join us. I really appreciate that. You probably notice it's uh, Haitian Music Day on uh, the Knife at the Gunfight. Uh, the music that we started out with uh, was two versions of the classic song, Haiti Shelly. Uh, the first one uh, from a 1989 track by Tiban L'Avenir, and the second a version more recently by Jacques Sauvier Jean. And it's possible I'm terribly mispronouncing those. The last song was the Wyclef Jean track, I'm In Love With Lady Haiti, which he performed just this month in New York with the Roots crew playing compa in the background, which we really appreciated. Also, you may have noticed in the background as I replayed a clip from Dr. Williams' news conference in Dallas, uh, you may have noticed Tom Morello's guitar work in the uh, track from the Battle of Los Angeles album by Rage Against the Machine. That song was called Wake Up. And now before I close out the show, uh, there was two things I wanted to share with you. The first is a public service announcement that I prepared on behalf of the Baltimore Ceasefire Initiative. Uh, we are preparing for another weekend push to free the city of violence from February 2nd to February 4th, and I've taken on uh, an additional role as an ambassador of that movement, and I've been grateful for that opportunity to participate and work for the benefit of this city. And lastly, I've, I've mentioned Ryan Harvey a couple of times, so I wanted to share one of the tracks off of his recent album with the British-Palestinian Kareem Samara uh, and Shireen Lilith from the recent album Thin Blue Border. The song is called See It Through. Mm -hmm. 
Thanks again for joining us. Join us again next time. Hello, Baltimore. Have you accepted the peace challenge? You've probably heard of Baltimore ceasefire. But who are we and what are we about? This is a movement of Baltimoreans for Baltimoreans to stop the violence and celebrate life and culture in this city. We're calling a weekend ceasefire, 72 hours where we challenge the city to purposefully work to end violence and celebrate life. Nobody kill anybody. Get up, show up, show love. Talk to your neighbors, bring your resources to help this city find another way. Put your guns down and raise up life. Baltimore Ceasefire 365. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Find a calendar of events online at BaltimoreCeasefire.com. And join us on our weekend free of violence on the weekend of February 3rd. Get up, show up, show love, and accept the Baltimore Peace Challenge. And the silence breaks, voices are loud, rubber bullets crack, pierce the crowd. Heart starts pumping, scared and proud because the people still sitting in a tear gas cloud. The line advances, swinging sticks, hear the marching boots and the taser clicks. Screaming abrupts, someone got struck, people calling for a medic. They better hurry up, now the vomit comes like a flood. Getting choked by the gas, hands covered in blood. Bruised and beaten, limping away. Remember, it's always been this way. They'll beat you down, show you the guns, get to find some time, and they change colors. Yeah, stand for a morgue then come back to this too many people For them to attack you gotta hold the line Even if your voice shakes, friend of mine Even if your voice shakes, push forward It's up to you, see it through Like this, when something clicks, when you're confused, tired, and scared of shit. But your body's alive with that heartfelt driving you engaged and proud right before you rise. When you could have ran, but you stayed inside. When you were beaten and gassed, and you still came back. The feeling, the power that you got deep down. Rise to the top when you get beat down. There's a world to win when your heart is strong and it doesn't do wrong. To focus on every day brings a vision to strive for. Something to live and die for. And when you go back home and you're on your own, it's easy to feel like you're all alone. But it's the memory and hope that you stay so Cause we can't quit now, we can't afford it Hold the line, even if your voice shakes Friend of mine, even if your voice shakes Push forward, it's up to you, see it through